Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Windwalk. Windwalk builds digital communities and the technologies necessary to accelerate them through their flagship software, Harbor. Harbor is an end-to-end community software that empowers community and marketing teams to delight users, measure success, and grow across an expanding number of digital channels. Harbor is a foundational technology loved by millions of gamers and integrated into the communities of the largest mobile, PC, and Web3 gaming products on the market. To learn more about this flagship product, simply head to harbor.gg or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Navic Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ovori. We have a great episode for you today and a fantastic guest. We've done a lot of looking back at 2023 in our end of year episodes. So today we will be leaping into the new year with gusto and taking a forward look at the Web3 gaming space with none other than one of the founders of Immutable, Robbie Ferguson. Immutable is one of the leaders in the Web3 space, and I think it might be Australia's fastest growing company. Robbie will correct me if I'm wrong on that later on. They raised about 400 million Aussie dollars in funding, and most recently were valued at 3.5 billion, which is about two and a half billion in US dollars. Uh, Robbie founded the company with his brother, James, in 2018, when it was called Fuel Games, and they developed and published the trading card game Gods Unchained, which I'm sure longtime listeners will have heard about if they follow the space. And we actually talked about it quite a bit about two weeks ago in an episode when we did an overview of the state of Web3 TCGs. So if you're curious about Web3 TCGs, be sure to check that episode out. The company then rebranded as Immutable in 2019 and added NFT trading, among other products, which we're going to talk about in depth today. And given their perch in the ecosystem, Immutable gets to see a lot of what's going on in the space. And that's why I'm very excited to have Robbie on the show today. Robbie, welcome to the pod. Awesome. Great to be here, Nico. Fantastic. All right. With that out of the way, let's get right into it. So why don't we start with a bit of background on Immutable? Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you started out as game developers. This is often the case when these things uh, pivot into other things. And then you took a bit of a turn. So why don't you tell us the story of Immutable? Of course. I think as a bit of background, I'm a massive video gamer growing up. So I've been playing games since I was a, a kid. I have thousands of hours in RuneScape, in League of Legends, in a bunch of other MMOs. So it's my brother. And I guess we, we got obsessed with the idea of real value in gaming actually pretty early on. So I've been building startups with my brother for the last decade now, both originally software engineers. And the first startup we ever built was a betting application or platform for League of Legends, where you could wager on your own matches against your opponent. And we had this idea that if you could have skin in the game, players would be engaged and retained with statistically far higher uh, certainty than without this. And it could be this new horizontal layer of engagement. And eventually games shut it down to you in broaching terms of service. But we were still obsessed with this idea of value inside of games. And then we got into crypto in 2014 with Bitcoin, and we became completely obsessed with Ethereum in 2015, because it was pretty clear that if you could write early on, there was this uh, application called Etherall, and it was very basic. 
And it was a basically gambling dice application where you could say, bet on a dice roll, and it would probabilistically reward you with a small house edge. And the reason we were obsessed was in 200 lines of code, someone had made redundant what the Australian government spends tens of billions of dollars doing every year, which is they go and heuristically test slot machines to see if they're paying out what they say they'll pay out between 88 and 92 cents on the dollar. And they air gap all these machines that they can't be sort of broken or corrupt or updated the code later on. And then they did something that the government could never do, which is they took the profit streams and they gave it to every player who used the game. And, and this idea, I think, of cooperatively being able to own companies was the thing that we became really interested in uh, as a new way to grow companies by giving away a share of the pie in exchange for faster growth. And also how sort of network effects over time for a lot of traditional modes could become things that were communally owned and value could be distributed more equitably. And so we started building uh, trading bots initially on Poloniex and then on uh, decentralized exchanges. And then we got into NFTs when the first ever NFT came out in 2017 called CryptoPunk. And we saw these and said, this will be how gamers own in-game items. To us, that was the most obvious category of mainstream adoption in gaming. Now, it's taken a while to get there, but I think we're basically at the end, we're going to start to see tens of millions of users on board to Web3 Fire gaming. And we actually started by building the first ever on-chain game, which was called Etherbots. I think it came out in December 2017. And all of the logic of this game was completely decentralized. It was very expensive to run. So I think we learned a lot early on around there was demand for this. I, mean, I think it made $2 million in, in revenue the first few months, but it was almost impossible to build on Ethereum and it was impossible to use or scale Ethereum. We were effectively building on punch cards of, of computers. It was that rudimentary and, and the documentation was that poor. So we realized there was demand, but there was also this problem and someone needed to make a platform. And actually our vision from day one was always to create a platform. We just knew until we could showcase to the world with a really strong game, why this matters in the same way that Steam really got to become this dominant platform for trading by creating Counter-Strike Go, that we, we wouldn't be able to do a successful job otherwise. And, and, and the second thing is, I think if you're building a platform, the first thing you should do is be your own customer. Otherwise you end up building something that is very abstracted away from customer needs. So we started by building Gods Unchained, which to me was the most obvious mimetic fit for a Web3 game. You have Magic the Gathering cards, you have Yu-Gi-Oh cards, where hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every year on, on trades, right? The estimated secondary market cap of Magic cards is 10 to $20 billion. And then you can have the convenience and the distribution of a digital card game like Hearthstone, which broke records and was a category-defining game when it came out, I think, in what, like around 2010. And... We said, well, why don't we merge these and, and create a, a, a card game? The other reason is we had raised a couple of million dollars from Coinbase's first ever uh, venture check and, and from a, a few other funds. But that's not enough to make a AAA MMO. It is enough to make a really high quality trading card game. So that's how we got started. Uh, Gods Chain was really successful, 15 million US revenue in, in the first year. I think it was a prototypical game that a lot of other things have been built on. And that really allowed us to start focusing on building up this platform. And you know, Immutable today has more than 250 games building on us. We have 70 to 75% market share of, of all, all Web3 games in, in the space, roughly 300 people around the world. Uh, and we, we expect more than half of these to go live uh, this year with the launch of Immutable ZKVM. Yeah, I think, Robbie, the point you made about you have to be your own first customer and dog food your own product, I think that's just so true and it just resonates very deeply with me. There just aren't really, name me one platform player who hasn't done that first, been their own 
first customer, done all the things wrong that they're going to do, realize where the pain points are, and then actually solve the problem. It's the same for Epic. It's the same for, as you said, Steam. It's just, it's a kind of a universal truth. So I really do appreciate that you guys were very much one of the very first to go out there and try and build something. Uh, again, thematically, trading card games make a lot of sense. That's why we did an entire episode a couple of weeks ago uh, covering the Web3 um, ecosystem there. And of course, Gods and Chain was, was heavily mentioned there. We've touched on a lot there in the intro. And so I'm just curious to hear, what are the other things that Mutable is now involved in? You've told us the journey of where you, you came from and where you are now. And now you have a, your finger in a lot of pies. You still obviously got Gods and Chains on the gaming side. You've got Immutable X, which is your Ethereum layer two. You've got NFT trading. What else do you have going on in this space? So I categorize the big buckets of Immutable as we have the studio, which builds and publishes Web3 games. And that's led by Justin Hulock, who formerly read Write, Write, Write Games Asia. And the reason we do that is A, we can have these successful prototypes, but B, so we know exactly how to help the games on our platform. Every piece of IP we invest in, how do we do a successful long-term economy design for Web3 assets? How do we have a successful tokenomics launch? How do we have a frictionless user experience get shared with every other game on our platform? And I think that is one of the core reasons that we've been able to have the market share we've had. Especially before a couple of years ago, we weren't nearly as well resourced as the other major blockchains who we were typically competing with. And I think the reason we were able to compete toe-to-toe is Everyone has come to gaming because they see clearly the next 100 million users to Web3 are coming through gaming. This is going to make my blockchain the most used blockchain in the world. And this matters in terms of adoption and metrics. So let's staff it. Let's fund it. We've been purely focused on Web3 gaming as the only category we want to touch. We said no to PFPs. We said no to DeFi. We said no to collectibles. And I think that's meant the DNA of the company, both at an intellectual property level, the way we understand things, but also the product level is, is fundamentally optimized for, for gaming. The core part of the business is the immutable platform. And uh, this is now very broad. So our, our goal is to be the one-stop shop platform. If you want to build a Web3 game, you shouldn't have to really know what blockchain you're using. You shouldn't have to know what even a blockchain is. You should be able to incredibly easy onboard, deposit funds, purchase assets, and experience the value proposition of Web3 gaming. Now, with the launch of Immutable ZKVM, which is going into mainnet early access slash beta end of this month, and then full launch end of March with a bunch of games, we are able to have smart contract compatibility with ZK Briefs. So I, that's really exciting. And, and, and that's obviously a, a huge effort over the last year from us as we've been building that with the Polygon team. We also, though, have a bunch of other products. Our global order book means that you have unified liquidity no matter what marketplace you trade on which is one of the biggest problems in the space today because liquidity gets fragmented every single venue you trade on. It's also much better for marketplaces because they get access to far more listings that they can fill and take fees on on their platform. We have enforceable royalties for every single originated asset on the immutable protocol, which is guaranteed at the protocol layer, which for us is a very important philosophical component. If you can't guarantee royalties, I think you're breaking one of the main value propositions of trading in Web3. We By the way, I'm just going to jump in on that one. I, I think 100%. I'm, the idea that you wouldn't enforce royalties, I'm very much on your side in this debate. I know it's there's a philosophical disagreement among some of the purists and non-purists, and that's fair. You can make arguments for both sides, but 100%. If you can't enforce royalties, like what is the point of a marketplace? There is no point. So thank you for and doing I think, that. I think, unfortunately, this, this debate has been, a lot of the people who say, well, philosophically, we're taking this end, really, it's not a philosophical argument. It's a it's very difficult to do with a smart contract layer alone. 
yeah, if you just try and enforce it at smart contract layer, people can typically write smart contracts that just right around it. As you've seen with Blur or XDY2, it's a race to the bottom. And that's part of the reason why we think it's so important to enforce the protocol levels, that everyone is in the same playing field. Yep. Uh, but I, I completely agree. I think it's it, an axiom of people being able to have successful monetization. Yeah. The third thing we have immutable checkout, which is you can pay with any currency, with any funds on ethl one or ethl two, and, and and the idea is just incredibly compliant, simple payment routing for you know anyone trying to pay for for a game. We have immutable passport with currently two million uh, people who have signed up to that, which is our uh, self custodial. Uh, wallet product where you can onboard with email or iOS or Android uh, or, or sorry e- or Gmail. And the reason why this is so powerful is it's blending the user experience of hey, literally just signing in with say Apple plus self custody. Um, so we're, we're we're not taking users' assets on on that front. So we have a very broad suite of, of products, but our vision is if you want to build a Web three game and make it successful, or you want to play a Web three game we'll connect you or we'll build the product that you need to, to do. And on the, the games front, our vision is a barbell strategy. You should be able to build completely customized self, uh, smart contracts. You can just copy and paste them from Ethel one with Mutual ZKVM, or you can just build with APIs and never have to touch smart contracts under the hood. And I think that's incredibly important because so many of the developers that are going to be onboarding over the next one, two, three years as these games go mainstream aren't even going to know what a smart contract is, what the entrance bugs are. I think we're going to prevent many of these people from successfully developing unless we make a Stripe-like interface we've got to build. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I've been in the Web3 space for for a number of years now and went through the euphoria of 2020, 2021 into 2022. And it's it, it, there was always a promise like, oh, it's so hard to build. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, hadn't come these tools that you're talking about, these tools that you're building, they, they weren't there yet. And they're still not there yet, quite frankly, I think, uh, across the board. So I'm curious to hear, what is your view of the overall Web3 gaming space right now? It's, it's, it's had a lot of false starts and some made some promises that it hasn't quite been able to keep, at least not yet. So I'm just curious, from your perspective, you oversee a lot of the, the ecosystem. What is your view of Web3 gaming as we enter 2024 and moving forward? Is there more pain to come or is it turning a corner? The number one question I get is, why are there no mainstream Web3 games? And there's two answers to that. The first answer is, up until six months ago, the infrastructure didn't even exist for these to go mainstream. There was no good way to abstract gas from players. The user experience on boarding to MetaMask killed 99% of conversion for any end user. And this is not a, you know, a pain point against that. MetaMask and, and crypto wallets are product designed for hardcore crypto users. If you're trying to onboard the incredibly competitive performance marketing target audience of, say, mobile or casual games. You need a product that is incredibly easy to onboard with. And then people also forget that a lot of this existing infrastructure has already had hit content to help people jump the hurdle of onboarding. The first time you sign up to Apple's ecosystem and you decide to deposit your credit card, it's not a frictionless experience. You've yeah. got to do a bunch of things. And But now that ecosystem exists, and so we're really getting over that S-curve of, of bootstrapping things from scratch. And that's why we need hit content. But I think that is now in play. Immutable Passport is live. We have done A-B tests and it converts four to 600% more efficiently than uh, standard wallets. We have full gas abstraction. We have Immutable ZKVM, which is smart contract compatible, but also fully scalable. I think the infra is now finally there. The second question is content. And the reality is the vast majority of games were funded two to three years ago and games take four to six years to build. So 
really, we're only starting to see these games launch now. And we track pretty much every game in our pipeline. We track the expected value of success, which we bucket into based on funding, game design, track record, playtesting, et cetera. It's almost an internal venture team. And we track when they're going live. And obviously, you have to add on some delay typically to these games. But there will be 50 to 100 high-quality games that launch this year. At the 250, the average funding size is seven figures. We, these are all managed customers. We're not even tracking those sort of indie self-serve applications. These are all major games. Um, like one, one of the ones we, one of the last week, which we'll, we'll announce soon, uh, I think more than 15 million US dollars in funding. They have a team of 120 full-time people. That's the average profile of, of um, one of these games that we, we've been seeing. And so really the problem is timelines and these games are now going live. I think the other reason is given the market the last two years, there was no real urgency for these games to ship. It's not as if they could have made a ton of money through primary sales or speculation or launching a token. The rise in Web3 gaming fundable tokens has put a huge shift in urgency for the timelines for many of these games to ship. They're all trying to get tokens out there. They're all trying to get playtests and, and beaters and, and start to win the narrative because right now there's obviously this huge burgeoning narrative for, for Web3 gaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something you said, I actually use the exact same example, which is the example of, hey, if you're trying to set up your credit card for the first time on on Apple Pay or whatever, there's a ton of friction there. But there's also an incredible amount of value on the other side waiting for you. And that's why people are prepared to do that. And I think that's exactly what we've been missing. For the financial side of things, there has been value, right? So you set up your MetaMask, you set up your Coinbase account, like there's money to be made, right? When there's money to be made, people are ready to jump through a bunch of hoops and do the hard work. And then once it's done, right, you don't have to do that onboarding ever again. But with gaming, there just hasn't been that big, valuable hit game on the other side of all of this hoops that you got jumped through. And that's, in my opinion, very much the same vibe that you're giving off here, which is once that good content comes and there's a clear and obvious reason to do the hard work of getting your wallet set up or whatever. And of course, everybody's making like you guys are making it easier and easier with time, more frictionless, um, like a Stripe-like interface, which you also mentioned. It will happen, right? And so I'm still very bullish long-term on Web3. Sounds like obviously you are, you have to be <laughs> given your, your position. So you've alluded to a couple of big announcements. You mentioned Polygon already. So why don't we actually start with that, getting to some of the other stuff that you're talking about. But all of these announcements, I think, are made and all of these deals are made, partnerships are made with the view of making Web3 gaming more accessible and more easily onboarded for the mass market. So why do we start with the Polygon side? I think that's an infrastructure type deal. What is all that about? So end of 2022, we really had one major competitor in the space and gaming was effectively a two horse race. You had Polygon and Immutable with roughly 35% market share each. And uh, I, I remember there was this report by, I think it was, Delphi Digital, which was analyzing the market share of the major blockchain by looking at the funding attributed to games building on them. Uh, and Immutable and Polygon had uh, roughly a billion US dollars each, which was two thirds of all sort of funding for, for games in the space. And we were competing viciously. The amount of grants going to games was rising rapidly. We were both massively staffing up teams. And I remember Sunday popped in the call with me and said, at the end of the day, you guys aren't a scaling protocol and, and we're not a gaming platform. So there's an opportunity for us to really simplify the user and developer choice and to form a default platform for gaming by, by joining forces. And that's exactly what we did. So we built Immutable ZKVM, which uses the Polygon Prover and, and the technology at the scaling uh, level that they, they acquired three teams back in uh, 2020 slash 21 in what I think was probably 
one of the more successful examples of M&A in the space. And the, the second thing is we really joined forces on the go-to-market side. And since then, we've seen our win rates and our, our market shares jump from 35 to, to roughly 70%, which is what, what we expected. So that's been fantastic. And, and more importantly, I simplified the choice for developers. Um, you know, the number one comment we got from that was, I was originally choosing between Polygon and Immutable. Now I don't have to decide. And I think that's incredibly important because there is so much energy in the space dedicated to what blockchain you're going to use, what platform, wallet. We really need game developers to be obsessed with just how do I make my game more successful, more fun, the user experience better, rather than you don't spend that much time agonizing over whether you use AWS or GCP in people yeah. in a Web2 game. So that, that's been really successful. We're, they're a fantastic team to work with. And obviously, we've, we've continued this trend of these strategic partnerships with Merit Circle slash Beam, which we announced roughly one month ago, uh, which is the largest Web3 gaming down in the space, uh, building a, a ton of stuff on, on, on Immutable. And we're really excited to be working with that team as well. Fantastic. We'll talk a bit more about that in a second. But uh, I think one of the things that is underappreciated by uh, people who are looking from the outside in, who have not had to work in Web3 and do all the, the plumbing. We had an episode right before the end of the year. Game 7 had done a, a state of gaming, Web3 gaming report, and we had them on to talk about it. I thought it was a fantastic report, by the way. Go and check it out uh, if you haven't already. And uh, I forget the number now, but it was something like there are 700 different blockchains now, and most of them are dedicated with the or like they're dedicated to gaming they're trying to say hey we're the best blockchain for gaming and that's just madness if i'm choosing to to develop a game say there are 700 unities out there or there are 700 unreal engines or there are 700 app stores to choose from between apple and google that's madness everybody can tell you that's madness so i i do think it's, it's actually in my opinion it's a good thing that there's some consolidation happening obviously com competition is always good for innovation. Uh, but at some point, rationality has to prevail. And you can't have an ecosystem of 700 different blockchains. I make up the number one. I think it shows the promise of the category, right? Nico, it does, is, though. It does, know, yes. People realize how much product market fit and how big this is going to be. There's $150 billion spent every year on in-game items. Yep. And if we can translate that into value that is open and tradable on an asset, ecosystem like an open blockchain and then you can add on derivatives and secondary financial instruments the opportunity here is quite literally half or trillion or a trillion dollar financial market annually because that's typically what in terms of the value of secondary financial instruments built on top of primary spot volume yeah, yeah no 100 you're preaching to the choir there okay so you mentioned merit uh, circle i know them them well the largest gaming dow out there i'm curious to hear what the thinking behind that deal is and uh, what you guys are doing together Again, this was a real opportunity for us to say Merit Circle and Immutable were competing in markets. We were both going in and bidding up grants for games, et cetera. And at the end of the day, I think there's a huge opportunity for uh, the leading gaming platform, which is Immutable, to partner with the largest Web3 gaming DAO in the world, which is uh, Merit Circle, and form joint infrastructure that makes it exceptionally uh, easy for games to be successful. Uh, so they'll be building a ton of that infrastructure uh, with us. Uh, but B, just to simplify again the choice for developers. Um, and Merit Circle has, I think, a $100 million cash treasury. They have obviously a, a, an enormous native treasury. They're a team that I think has been really phenomenally obsessed with gaming. And we've already seen of the games that we've been working with together, people are incredibly excited for what they're going to bring to the ecosystem. So they're building publishing infrastructure, community infrastructure, marketplaces on top of Immutable, and we'll be working a ton together on the go-to-market side. So again, I think this is probably a, a much bigger deal than people initially sort of 
people heard the Polygon announcement, like, oh, great, a, 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 interesting another partnership that there's there's many of these. And really, that was actually a fundamental shift in in terms of uh, the topology of Web3 gaming and, and resolving the, the number of choices that game developers have to go to, right? This is the same thing. Yeah, I, I get the Merit Circle Treasury update email every month. And uh, they have a lot of capital to deploy, and they obviously serve a lot of gamers and bring a lot of player liquidity, potentially. Um, into Do it again, so, 10 seconds. Uh, I actually thought this was a really interesting partnership. And to your point, that maybe there are outsiders looking in again, or okay, it's a DAO. Like, I thought DAOs were for buying the Constitution circa 2019 or whatever. <laughs> if you remember that, the Constitution DAO project. But I, I actually think it's a bigger deal than uh, maybe people give it credit for. So yeah, I'm interested to see what you guys do together. Okay. A lot of great news, a lot of great announcements. All of them, of course, meant to move the Web3 space forward. And I think one of the biggest ones, biggest announcements that you've made, which I thought was really interesting, is doing something with one of the largest legacy gaming companies. Uh, by legacy, I don't mean it in a derogatory manner. Right? In a, this is a big deal, big company. Ubisoft, what are you guys doing together? So we are building a uh, frictionless experience for the future of Web3 gaming together. There'll be more details to be shared on that in the coming months. But we've been really excited to be working with this team. I think they're actually deeply committed to the space. They are, yeah. Of all the, the big companies out there, I think, or uh, certainly in the West, we're going to talk about Asia Pacific in a second. But uh, yeah, I'm really impressed by how committed they have been throughout the crypto winter as well, not just in the good times, but also through the bad times. And yeah, I'm excited to see you guys doing stuff there. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I just want to give them a shout no, out because they really yeah. are doing great work. I, I totally agree. So this was a year in the works of negotiation and going back and forth and us flying to France, et cetera. But I'm really glad we got this over the line. There will be a, a lot of things coming out around this and things you can use this year. So we're, we're very excited for, for this partnership and what's going to bring the space. Fantastic. So yeah, a lot of big announcements. And of course, each of those is big in their own right. But collectively, we're hoping it's going to move Web3 Gaming forward. But I do want to talk about adoption a little bit more here. We touched on this earlier a little bit. We, we need that big hit game to come out. We need those bets that were made two or three years ago to start actually coming to market. Uh, we need some of this infrastructure that you guys are building and others are building to come online and becoming um, even more frictionless um, than, than they are now. But do you see there being some kind of seminal moment for Web3 Gaming? How do, we, how do we honestly get more gamers into Web3 Games from where we are today? It, it's been the same group of people who've been hanging out in Web3 for a while now. We haven't really seen the numbers go up. It seems like there's not a lot of curiosity on the outside looking in. And so I just want to get your perspective on how do we get more gamers into these Web3 Games short of like obviously hit games, that's a, that's an obvious one. Um, but I do think there are other things that we could be doing to bring more gamers into the ecosystem. I, I don't think there's an answer outside of get more hit games. And I've, I've said the same boring answer for the last uh, three <laughs> years. But I think it's, you have to build games that are invisible to end players, that Web3 is even a component, certainly at least until they're reasonably engaged. And then you have to deliver a value proposition of them being able to trade and sell for real value things that they otherwise couldn't. And I think the first time you have a game with 10 million players where a reasonable chunk of those are converting, the first even one-tenth of Counter-Strike Go, which does $15 billion in annual GMB per year of trading skins, I think is the moment you have this inflection point where you've proven the category. Every single time you've had a major successful game, which has been millions or hundreds of thousands of players in the space so far, you've had this inflection point of investment, et cetera. Even the last three months we've seen, investments in velocity of, of deals done, probably 5x. So mm -hmm. 
it is pretty clear that the entire space is waiting for these hits. Now, I think the privileged position we're in is we get to see everything building. We know there is more than 100 high-quality games going live on Immutable alone in 2024. We feel very quietly confident there's going to be uh, multiple hits uh, this year. I think with a million players, I think on a monthly basis would be my my kind of minimum uh, definition of a hit. And I think we'll see things hitting and exceeding that. Some confident predictions. I like it. I like it. Not many of our guests are quite as confident uh, as as you are. But again, you do have a unique position in the ecosystem where you do get to see all these. You heard it here, listeners, like that's a big number. More than 100 games, you said. More than 100 high quality games are coming to market in 2024. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Wow. So we, we've got roughly 250 building on the platform. And, and just to give you an example of the pace, we onboarded 27 games in December. In the last 10 days, we've already onboarded another nine. So the pace at which we are onboarding these games is exponentially accelerating at the moment. So you know, we, we're, we're seeing more and more things. And, and, and these are all optimized for their credible games, their high levels of funding, and they're also launching this year. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Listeners, that's, that is big news. I think it sounds like 2024 could really be a inflection point. Next brings me nicely to my next question, which is what about Web3? I, I will, I will caveat that there's going to be a very high failure rate. Oh. Gaming already is entirely hit driven. Sure. The, there's going to be 90% of these games, which ultimately don't succeed, but you only really need one for the entire space to take off. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, of course, games is totally hits driven and a game that looks and feels good in, in soft launch may not work for any number of reasons. And we see that all the time in any gaming, whether it be Web3 or other OS. So no, of course, that, that goes with the same. But 100 high quality games are in development. I think that's the key point here. Like A lot of the early games that came to market and have been in market now in Web3 weren't high quality games. They were crypto enthusiasts who thought they could become yeah. game designers overnight and you know, you're planning Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no, I think that's there's far more than 100. That's just what we're confident we'll be shipping this confident. year based on our existing pipeline. So not even including games where we're about to onboard. Got it. Got it. Okay. So yeah, again, my next question very nicely dovetails into this conversation, which is what do we need to see for Web3 investment to rebound VCs to get really excited again? I feel like basically what I've been seeing and hearing from the VCs I talk to, they're all sitting and waiting for that hit game to come out. And that's the catalyst that they're waiting for as well. Is that the right read? Do we expect investors not to really get involved again until there is a a really big reason, a big financial return? I would say Web3 gaming investment is already back. I I don't think it's necessarily the peaks of what we saw in 2021, but we've already seen the velocity of deal making the 5x over the last three months. And that's because gaming tokens are doing incredibly well right now even with games being in the early stages. So it's not obviously a growth investing market. There typically isn't a growth investing market for games because games either are profitable or not. They don't mm-hmm. typically need to raise a lot of capital beyond, say, Series A. But they, we, we are seeing a lot of early stage deals get done. So I think you, you'll pull gasoline on this flame as soon as you have hits. But right now, there is, I, I, I think it's one of the best times to be building and raising a, a, a Web3 game if, you, if you're trying to. We're seeing deals get done in a week that struggled to raise for three months prior. And we think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, there's some green shoots showing for sure. I, I think so as well in, in gaming in general as well, not just Web3. Web okay, one of the things I keep hearing from guests on the show is how much more forward-thinking Asia-Pacific tends to be on Web3. And I personally don't have terribly good exposure to, to that region or to what's being built over there. So I always like to ask our guests who are experts in the area and have 
obviously you're in Sydney, <laughs> you're in the Asia Pacific region, and you obviously get to see a lot of uh, probably Asian developers as well. What are they doing differently, both from a regulatory framework perspective, but also from an encouraging innovation perspective in Asia Pacific compared to the US or, or Europe? The biggest thing is probably REC, especially around launching of, of tokens. I think there's a massive chilling effect if you're a US domiciled entity trying to launch tokens at the moment. The second thing I would say is from a cultural perspective, and I don't necessarily have the root cause of this apart from Japan and Korea have actually always been the vanguard of shifts in gaming. You had the first gacha games emerge out of uh, Japan. You had Korea really leading the, the charge into free-to-play. And I think they view this prisoner's dilemma or this innovator's dilemma of who should move first to switch the model to an open economy or who will be able to experiment successfully disrupt the incumbents as something they can win rather than hedged strategies like the West, where they'll say, we're very happy to buy, as we many of the largest games companies in the world, a lot of the responses are, we're happy to play around a bit, but ultimately we're just going to buy the winners and, and we're just going to buy our way into the space once this emerges, because that's, they're happy to pay, right? These are multi-hundred billion dollar companies. Uh, I think in Asia, in, in Japan, in Korea in particular, you have a risk appetite that's much higher. And you also have, and this is very common amongst uh, Korean and Japanese developers, a true obsession with delivering more value to players. And a lot of these people are just sold that you give players more value when they can actually own assets, which I think is phenomenal and obviously the best form of motivation. The third thing I would say is the gamers themselves are used to paying for power in games. They're used to having more financialized assets and economies. And so I think it's a much stronger native reception from the audience there than it is in the West where you have a lot of discourse around free to play, around exploitation of gamers, and really a resentment of any new form of monetization. And so the playbook there is you have to be much more cautious around branding. You have to really make sure you're delivering value from day one in a way that's incredibly obvious. And you probably also have to make the Web3 side as invisible as possible. Whereas in, in Asia, you can almost be talking about NFTs as a feature or a pro of your game. So I think those are my three insights. Obviously, we're, we're really excited to be based here. We're even seeing a lot of games being built out of China at the moment. Uh, one of our largest games um, is is built out of there. And with $50 million of funding and MMO coming out later this year, there's a ton of games which are being developed in China that are being published globally because it's not actually legal to publish a game. Right, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, to a domestic audience. Um, yeah. So there's this interesting sort of global publishing strategy that's emerging now. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting insights there. Yeah, it's always been the case. Free-to-play mobile was is a great example where mostly the West, especially early on when people were still figuring things out, there was still a land grab and a, a gold rush going on. It was always the case when I was at Zynga during the early days of mobile that we would look to the Asian markets to see what interesting features were being launched and released. Obviously, we couldn't understand the games because the language barrier, but we could look at the mechanics and we could reverse engineer as product managers what they were doing and then implement some version of that into our own games. And I think that's always been true. I think there's just always been a lot of really interesting innovation, especially around monetization. I think you're exactly right there in the Asian markets compared to the US and the European markets. Is, that, is it your view then that I hate to use the term Western, but non-Asia Pacific developers should be looking to Asia right now at some of the games that are launching for inspiration? Do you think they're going to be more successful than some of these other games that we're talking about? Not necessarily. I think there's certainly games with Western audiences that are going to get it right. They'll probably just be different genres. You'll probably see 
a lot more mobile and casual games in Asia-Pacific, a, a lot more gacha-driven economies and MMOs, which are incredibly popular there. You'll probably see more FPSs, perhaps more trading card games, things that Western audiences are, are more used to, and also a lot more desktop-based titles in the West. So look, I think both will be successful, but I think that from a branding perspective, it is probably easier for Asia Pacific to be shipping right now. Gaming is a global business. So mo most of these people, when they're targeting distribution, they're not, you, you would not exclude the US, you would not exclude Canada and, and vice versa. If you're in the West, you're not just publishing to, to the US or Canada. You're also selecting Japan and, and Korea and, and these incredibly high ARPU countries. Yeah, I, I think it's probably more around this, the genre of games that are going to be popular and their, and their distribution strategy, but ultimately everyone will plan to publish globally. Yeah. Okay. And I'm glad you mentioned the word distribution because that was uh, my next question anyway here. So we all know as game developers that distribution, and by distribution, I mean getting the, the game into the hand of the target gamer, right? That is my definition of distribution here. That's really hard in games. It's very expensive. UA has gotten ridiculously expensive over the years. Only the very biggest, most successful games can afford to pay the CPIs that are required these days on mobile and good luck getting discovered on Steam, <laughs> even though it's easy, relatively easy to publish there. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on distribution for Web3 games specifically. Where is it going to be the traditional channels that we always see? Is there going to be a whole new performance marketing field that's going to add tech and gaming are always the two first things <laughs> that show up on any new platform or any new technology. And so blockchain, I don't expect to be any different. Gaming, of course, is the one that we all talk about. And then ad tech will follow. Performance marketing will follow. What do you see having to be done differently in Web3 distribution and marketing compared to more traditional channels that we know about? The fundamental laws of performance marketing won't change, which is your customer acquisition cost has to be less than your ARPU or the CLP you made from that customer. And that has been impeded by poor user onboarding, which if you're killing 90% of your users converting, you're making it 10 times more expensive for you to acquire customers. Now, people are competing at the margins in performance marketing for gaming. You have incredibly competitive ad spend and, and audience spend. And this is making it impossible for people to compete on that basis. So I think that's just fundamental. That has to be fixed and, and, and that is getting fixed. But I think the more interesting question is, what unique advantages does Web3 provide to Web3 games that allow them to compete more efficiently? And I think the answer here is probably two things. One is our thesis on when a gamer is spending on assets they can later sell, they're going to be retained better because they've skimmed the game and their ARPU is going to be way higher. And if that thesis holds true, it's going to make it much easier for people to justify the spend. But I think the most interesting thing is the killer value proposition of crypto so far, which has been proven, which is ERC-20 tokens as capital formation and incentive formation. And we are you know, very obsessed with this idea of if you can create an asset that is worth a, a lot of value, and then you can give that asset away in order for people to join your ecosystem, almost as your performance marketing budget, we have an incredible competitive advantage where you can be sharing the future value and the future economy ownership of your game with players in exchange for bootstrapping growth. And I think that was why we came into the space in the first place. It's this idea of being able to take whole chunks of company value, give it away through efficient programmatic means. And everything has to be measured with return on token spend. This is not some magical, hey, we're doing an airdrop and we suddenly have an audience. But if you can get that right, then 
you have this enormous budget that you can be using to to drive acquisition uh, of, of audiences faster. And I think that's what the killer differential is going to be. Well, that's interesting. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. If every game has their own token, and every game in Web3 has to this date generally had a token, wouldn't that dilute the value of any one given token massively. Axie Infinity was so successful early on is because they were the only game in town, pardon the pun, with a token that they were giving away. And then people were legitimately making money uh, off that. And of course, that will then cause it to rise in value. And in the end, of course, we all saw that wasn't sustainable. It still has value, sure, but it wasn't sustainable at the levels that it was trading at. And so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on what's different this time around versus early Axia days, which of course kicked off the original boom in, in Web3 gaming in particular. What is different this time around? Why do you see these tokens being able to hold value at scale across an entire ecosystem? I think the difference is the... First off, many of these tokens will fail. Many of these games will fail and that's okay. It's just they're sharing value in exchange for players to join and, and and that means they have this budget. You still need to be able to have a game that is sufficiently retentive, sufficiently good, but it means that the winners can win harder and win faster without having to raise tens of millions of dollars to, to pay for performance marketing. Uh, and I think it could replace and obsolete a lot of the Google spend, a lot of the Facebook ad spend, where really it's just an intermediary rather than just sharing direct value and audiences. And the second thing is that you know the game quality. There's games which unless your game is willing to be played and can be successful as a web two game, it's not going to be successful as a Web3 game. So all of this is augmenting and, and, and ways of making the economy bigger, making it more interesting, sharing value more effectively. I, I, I just think of for these things, it is like frequent flyer points on steroids where you can create incredible loyalty systems and give away value programmatically, incredibly efficiently, more than any previous system in history. But there's, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just a way of you know, sharing value in a way that has to be measured Eventually, this will get arbitraged out, and and you know the the most successful games will be able to do it faster. It's just a more efficient model than I think the current ad spend model. Okay, I, I'm curious to hear what's on the immutable roadmap for 2024. Obviously, you've made a bunch of these announcements. Most of this happened towards the end of uh, last year, 2023, and obviously you're going to be working on those in 2024. But what are the most exciting initiatives in your mind for what's on the immutable roadmap? So I think 2024 will be by far our biggest year yet. We obviously have immutable zkVM launching, which will be the end game scaling product for game developers to build. And we have, I think, more than 110 games out of our pipe committed to launching on the Moodle CKVM, which is incredibly exciting. We have a ton coming out on gaming partnerships, as always, where we'll be able to share more soon. A lot coming out on the uh, tokenomic side as well. Yeah, I, I, I can't share any, anything uh, too much yet, but stay tuned over the next few months as we, we roll things out. And then really the plan is just to continuously iterate our products and, and continue to expand and help games get live. I think that the core thing is how do we get Passport as frictionless as possible? How do we make the marketplace user experience as good as possible for the marketplaces building on our ecosystem? How do we make the uh, success of people launching tokens and the ELC20s uh, as, as successful po- as possible in the ecosystem? So we're really just fully obsessed on, we, we've got this pipeline of games, let's make them as successful as possible in, in 2024. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, really, fingers crossed that I'm rooting for you for the entire ecosystem. I've been a big believer in Web3 for a long time. And it's just, like I said at the start, it's had a lot of false starts and some broken promises along the way. But uh, I, th- I feel like maybe we're at that breaking point now where we, we, we get that finish line 
insight and actually get over it with one or more great games that are that are actually hits. Okay, so final question for you. I know we're coming up to time here. And this is a new question for 2024, inspired by, if anybody listens to Ezra Klein, New York Times podcast, he always asks his guests three books that they're reading that they would recommend to others. And so given this is a gaming podcast, I would love, love to know what all of our guests are playing and what they'd recommend. Robbie, what are three games that you're most excited by at the moment or playing yourself? I would say, first off, Alluvium Autobattler, Alluvium Arena. I think it's one of the best games I've played in the space. I'm actually a big Autobattler fan of TFT. Uh, I think this is going to be enormous this year, and that team is incredible. Um, I'll do one non-Web3 game. I played quite a bit of Baldur's Gate. Oh, uh, nice. That's on my list, actually. I haven't got to that yet. haven't had the yeah. time, but uh, nice. Fantastic game. Fantastic Great. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, great. I, I was very impressed by how they wove the D&D role mechanics into something that feels seamless. And then the final thing I would say is Guild of Guardians is going to be a monster. Hmm. Uh, this is coming out in a couple of months on, on full launch. We just shipped it in, in Canada for testing in a very high ARPU spent audience. And the early retention stats on this day one of, I, I think, 67% and a day seven of 46% from memory. Hmm. This is beyond world class. Now, there's some discounting of to do based on Golden Cohort, but this is over a thousand people. I think this is going to be an enormous hit this year. We're really excited about Guild of Guardians. Fantastic. Good luck. Good luck with that. And good luck with all your other initiatives as well. So that's a great place to end. So Robbie, want to say thank you so much for coming on the pod today. It was an absolute pleasure and welcome back anytime. If you have any other exciting news to share, we'd love to have you on the show. And a big thank you to all of our listeners. We'll be back next week with more interviews, more insights, and more analysis from the weird and wonderful world of Web3 and the metaverse. So until next time, friends, stay crypto curious and feel free to send questions, guest recommendations, and comments to me. My email is nico at novic.co. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.